You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Harvey Clare is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor Emeritus of Politics and History and former chairman of the Political Science Department at Emory University, where he taught from 1971 to 2016. He's the author, co-author, editor of more than a dozen books three of which have been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, including Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America, and Venona, Decoding Soviet Espionage in America. He's also written more than 120 articles and reviews for professional journals, as well as for commentary, The New Republic, New York Review of Books, Wall Street Journal, and Weekly Standard. His most recent book is The Millionaire Was a Soviet Mole, The Twisted Life of David Carr. We've been wanting to have you on for a while, so I especially can say welcome, Harvey, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Oh, it's del- I'm delighted to be here. So I, I've read a lot of your books. I mean, you can't be in this world and not run into, um, you know, probably maybe all of them. I don't know. But certainly a lot of them were throughout grad school and into my professional career. And the topics you write about tend to fall into a particular category. Um, but within that, there is some considerable variety. So let me ask you, in a broader sense, if you think throughout your career, how do you go about picking your topics? Like, what do you think about, is it is it the documents and the research that leads you to a topic, or you just get an idea and say, let me go see if there's something I can do about this? Well, it's a, it's a combination of things. And, and my career, I guess I've been very lucky in a way. Um, I first got interested in the issue of communism back in graduate school uh, in the 1960s. Um, that, that was a period when the new left was very active and uh, there was a lot of talk of revolution. And um, I, I became interested because a number of my friends in graduate school um, were supporting George Wallace for president. <laughs> this was bizarre. Uh, they, were, they were left-wingers. Uh, they were in Students for Democratic Society. And, and the question of why, and, and their response was, the worse, the better. That is, they, they, they hope that if fascism came to the United States, um, it, would, it would be rejected and, and revolutionaries would take over next. Well, that, that struck me as lunacy. <laughs> and I became convinced that, that uh, for that and other reasons, that the new left was going to 
fail spectacularly. And that got me interested in the question of why the left always failed in American po politics. Um, the United States was the only major industrial power that had never had a uh, socialist party uh, either win power or seriously compete for power. And, and so I, I, I started doing research on what Marxists called the theory of American exceptionalism. And that led me to the American Communist Party. And, and for the first part of my career, I did research on American communism, why it failed. I wrote a book um, about uh, called The Heyday of American Communism, about the, the period in which the party was most uh, successful, the 1930s. And um, for a couple decades, uh, I worked in that area, but uh, I, I was getting increasingly bored with it. Um, reading uh, Communist Party literature was not very exciting, if you've ever read much Marxist theory, it's pretty turgid. And um, I began looking around thinking about uh, possibly uh, another topic. And um, I, I got interested, um, Emery, in doing my research on American communism, I'd interviewed a guy named Philip Jaffe, who was a very close friend of Earl Browder. And uh, I eventually persuaded Jaffe to give all his uh, materials to the Emory Library. And I, I began going through them. And, and Jaffe was involved in something called the Amerasia spy case in 1945. Um, he, was, he was the editor of Amerasia, which was a journal of American-Asian relations. It was very strongly pro-Chinese communist. And um, uh, Jaffe was arrested in 45 with several other people, including John Stuart Service, a, a State Department China hand, uh, charged with uh, espionage. And um, Jaffe eventually pleaded uh, nolo contendere and was fined. And um, the, the case was um, sort of brushed off as an example of prosecutorial overreach. Um, but as I began to do research on Amerasia, and uh, I eventually applied for the FBI files on the case uh, and got them, it, it became clear that there was an issue of espionage in the Amerasia case and that Jaffe was a would-be spy. He never quite succeeded in spying, but he wanted to, and, and that was how he got involved in the case. So I, I wrote a book about Amerasia with Ron Radosh, um, a friend of mine. And that got me interested in, in Soviet espionage. And uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, more and more material was coming out. Um, uh, archives were opening up. Uh, spy agencies were becoming a bit more um, willing to uh, release information. And um, lo and behold, I, I found a, a kind of a new area of interest. And uh, in 1992, uh, I, I, I uh, traveled to Moscow, uh, to the former Soviet Union, and um, I was fortunate to be the first American and one of the first Westerners to have access to the archives of the Communist International. Um, and I, I began working in them and discovered fascinating material about espionage because the archivists hadn't known the stuff was in their archive. Um, and uh, so it, it, it was a combination of, of luck and 
being in the right place at the right time that got me access to all this information about espionage and led to a whole series of books, many of them with uh, John Earl Haynes uh, that uh, you mentioned, um, the Venona book, uh, The Secret World of American Communism, Spies, and so on. So it, it, it's, um, you have to be lucky and, and I guess also um, I had somewhat of a plan and, and just followed its twisting path uh, to become an expert on Soviet espionage. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw an interview with you where you mentioned that if anyone's been to an archive, you know that when you pull out a document or a folder or a box, you, you kind of sign a register that you're the person that pulled that out. And in some cases in Russia in 92, you weren't just the first American or the first questioner. In some cases, you're the first person to that's actually right. look at some of these documents. I mean, that's as good as it gets for any kind of historian. <laughs> that, that's better. It's, it's like, yes. you know, like a little kid and, and there's a gigantic cookie jar and it's filled with your favorite cookies. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a shock to me. And, um, and, and even more of a shock was starting to come across. And of course, a lot of the, the items in, in, that I was looking at were boring, bureaucratic kinds of things. But then I started coming across these documents that were stamped top secret in Russian. And um, that, that uh, it's hard to describe the, the, the feeling that I had, knowing that I was the first person to look at them. And um, it was even more uh, of a rush when I uh, looked at them and, and recognized some of the names on the documents. Uh, because they were people that had been named as as spies by Elizabeth Bentley, and uh, these documents were dated 1944 and 1945, which was well before uh, Bentley had gone to the FBI. So th these were not reports on something that Bentley had said. Th these were um, this was the real thing, and 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 that was just a, a, an incredible feeling. And it was pure luck. Uh, as, as you mentioned, nobody had ever looked at this stuff. It had been kind of shoved into these files. Even the archivists didn't know it was in there. And um, in those days, there were no Xerox machines in the Russian archives. And so um, you, you signed a, a register asking them to make microfilm copies of the stuff you were interested in. And when I left Moscow after about three weeks on that first trip, um, I had two thick reels of microfilm uh, with documents stamped top secret. It was a little nerve-wracking going through <laughs> uh, Russian customs. Um, and, and then when I got back to the United States and, and John Haynes and I started working on this stuff, we realized what we had, and it was a, it was a real treasure trove. You were probably the first American ever to leave Moscow with microfilm with top secret documents who weren't stealing information yeah. from that's right from without, being, without being yeah. arrested <laughs> um yeah and and in fact after our the so the secret world of american communism was published in which we reproduced a number of these documents um when john the, the following year john went back to moscow for some more research and um the svr was investigating the archive to find out how we had gotten this stuff and and the documents that we reprinted in our book, you cannot get them in Moscow at that archive now. They've been resecretized. They probably thought there was something very like mischievous or or you know diabolical, other than you just walking out the door with them. They probably couldn't believe 
that you just went in there and asked for them and got them. There had to be kind of some spy story involved with it. And instead, it's like, no, I just got them and left. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, in, in future years and, and future projects, uh, you, you get sort of the same combination of, of kind of luck and, and um, I, you know, just odd, odd things. For example, um, the book that we wrote called Spies with Alexander Vasiliev. Um, Vasiliev was a, a KGB officer um, who about 1988 or 89 quit. Uh, he was frustrated with what was going on and, and he just quit and, and went back to his first profession, which was journalism. Um, and then in, in the early 90s, um, the SVR was desperately broke and they needed money and uh, they signed a contract with Crown Publishers to produce a series of books um, with the co-authors uh, being a Russian and, and a Westerner. And uh, Alexander was asked to work with Alan Weinstein, uh, who at the time was archivist of the United States and of course had written the big book on, on uh, the Hiss case. And um, he was given access to um, KGB files. And for about two years, uh, made copies and, and, and summaries of enormous numbers of KGB files. Um, they, they were given his, and then he wrote up these reports that were, went to a declassification committee. And then uh, he could show them to Alan Weinstein, who would actually write uh, the English book, uh, which turned out to be The Haunted Wood. Mm. And um, Alexander did that, but he was becoming increasingly nervous about the political situation in Russia. And uh, he was threatened when he was in the archives by some diehard communists who felt he was uh, working as a spy. Uh, they were convinced that, that Weinstein worked for the CIA and that, that Alexander was uh, you know, part of some nefarious plot. And so he decided to leave Russia. He, he moved with his family to England where he still lives. And um, he took the, the um, chapters he had written, which had already been vetted by the, um, by the SVR with him, but he, he left his original notes with a friend in Moscow because he was afraid they'd be confiscated when he left. And, and uh, he later used um, DFL to ship them to himself in London. And um, one day he was, he was surfing the web and he came across uh, something that John and I had written about Alger Hiss. Um, and he got in touch with, with us. And in the course of the conversation, he, he indicated that he had these original notes and nobody had ever seen them. And a week later, we were in London, and um, the result was Spies, uh, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America, which exposed another 70 or 80 Soviet spies in the United States. So, you know, it, it's being in the right place at the right time and, and lots of luck. Yeah, and you just debunked, like, every high-tension spy move of all time. Like, the information gets out through DSL. You know, or through through just walking right through customs. So that's um, right. So again, anyone anyone who's done this work for a while has run into you know, if not dozens of your your work. You know, but you also your colleagues like Ron Radish and and John Haynes. Um, you're a prolific author, more than hundred articles. 
but I imagine none of them took as long to write as this one did. Can you tell us a little about the journey to tell the story of David Carr? Was this, this, as you mentioned, this is a long time coming. It is. It is very much. Um, I came across Carr when I was doing research for my book on Amerasia. Um, Carr was a peripheral player in that. Uh, he, he worked at the time for Drew Pearson, uh, the, the Hollywood, uh, excuse me, the, the Washington columnist. And um, some of the people that were involved in the Amerasia spy case were leaking material to Drew Pearson, and they were through David Carr. And so, you know, his name came up in the, in the files. And so I started to try to learn a little bit more about David Carr. And, and he, had, he had died in 1979. I was doing this work in the mid-80s, started this work in the mid-80s. And, and um, the more I learned about him, the, the more fascinated I became. He was a, a remarkable character. And I, I decided that he was worth an article uh, or maybe even a book. And uh, so after the Amerasia book was finished, um, I, I started doing more research on him. I contacted people that had known him. And this, I was very lucky because if I had waited a few years, most of them would have been dead. I never would have been able to get to them. Um, and one of the things that, that David Carr did is, is the end of his life, he was a, a major deal maker between American businesses and, and Western European companies and the Soviet Union. And so I contacted people in the Soviet Union, as it was then, and um, to try to find archives that might have information about his business dealings in Russia. Um, and one archive said, well, yes, we have some material on David Carr, and, and if you come, you, you'd be allowed to see it. So I made plans to travel to Moscow, and my 1992 trip was actually to get material on David Carr. Um, when I got to Moscow, uh, the archive that had said I would have access suddenly said, oh no, we have nothing. Um, and I, I went then to the Comintern archive where I found all this other stuff on spying. Um, so David Carr got pushed aside as John and I did a series of books on, uh, based on the material uh, from the Communist International Archives. And uh, I always wanted to go back to David Carr. And um, when I retired about three or four years ago from Emory, uh, I, I said, okay, this is my, my retirement project. So I went back to David Carr and the result was the millionaire was a Soviet mole. Um, and the, the, the length of time, the fact that I started in the mid-1980s and had interviewed a lot of people in the, in the late 80s and then um, got, went back to him uh, maybe you know, eight or nine years ago, uh, meant that some new material had, had appeared. And I was able, I think, to, to write a much better book. But it, it, you're right, it took a very long time. Well, let me ask you, for anyone who's dealt with writing intelligence history, there's always the normal speed bumps you run into, classification issues, the fact that most documents are not written for historians. In some cases, they can be disinformation or they're written to cover someone's ass. What I find fascinating about David Carr is you do have people that are willing to talk about him, but almost no one seems to have an objective view of David Carr. Everyone has their own, like either a bone to pick or they love the guy or they hate the guy. There's very few people he ever dealt with that don't have a very strong opinion <laughs> about him. 
So how do you know you're getting anything real? How do you know that? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you separate the people who just hated his guts with everyone else? Well, uh, first of all, it, you're, you're quite right. Uh, the very few people were neutral about him. Uh, the only minor correction I would make is that most people loathed him. <laughs> very, few, very, very few were, were fond of him. Um, um, it, it is a problem. It, it's hard. What you, what you have to do and what I tried to do in, in this book is, is present all the information I found. Um, on the one hand, Carr, you know, he, he could be extraordinarily charming and uh, congenial. Uh, he had to be to to uh, get to where he was in so many different careers. Um, and the other hand, you have to sometimes discount the fact that that people hated him so much that they were willing to uh, say extraordinarily nasty things about him. Um, you you just report what people said. and and you know, I tried to um, do that and let the reader draw his or her own conclusions. Um, in, in Carr's case, I was also lucky in that when I, when I came back to him uh, after this long hiatus uh, working on other stuff, um, I was finally able to, uh, he'd been married four times, and um, his first wife absolutely uh, refused back in the 1980s to have anything to do with me. Um, she, uh, she was a very successful woman. She had become the first female uh, producer at 60 Minutes. And, um, but she, she would not talk about him. Um, his, his second wife, who was a, a very uh, wealthy and sophisticated French woman, uh, did talk to me, but she, she was very reticent, uh, very unwilling to share very much private or very much, quite frankly, of interest. Um, I couldn't find the other two wives. Um, and when I, when I came back to the project, um, I searched once again. Uh, and, and lo and behold, uh, one of the wives, was a, she was a second wife. Um, it turned out she'd written an autobiography in, in the interim. <laughs> and uh, it was privately published, but I was able to find it. And I was able to track her down. And, you know, to my astonishment, she lived in the Atlanta area, not 25 miles from where I live. And um, his, one of his sons, her, her son, um, also lived in Atlanta. So I, I was able to get access to them. And, and she, in particular, had a much more nuanced view of Carr. And, and I think that helped, that helped me understand some of his attraction. Um, and then I was also able to find wife number four, who was his widow. Uh, she was a, a German model, uh, about 30 years younger than he was. And um, she is the, the one exception. I said earlier, you know, you, people have very strong opinions about Carr, both pro and con, most of them con. Uh, in the case of wife number four, uh, everybody hated her. So, <laughs> uh, but, but she was, she was a very interesting character and, and I was able to get her to talk about some things. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR and only Critical Start delivers it. 
Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Well, one thing that, you know, anyone writing essentially what is a biography as like this, you, you want to try to use your, your, your subject's words to try to help explain who he was. And Carr is not someone, I don't think, that we can count on to be an honest narrator of his own life. I mean, he lied, cheated, stole. He constantly pretended to be something he wasn't. How did you go about separating that, right? The idea is, I can't trust the guy I'm writing about because he never said an honest thing in his life. Right. Well, that's where the documents come in. Um, you know, as I'm, you're well aware of the fact that that, and particularly as you pointed out within with you know, the intelligence world, people lie, <laughs> uh, they deceive. The the very essence of intelligence is deception, um, and, and that's where the documents come in to to give you a reality check. So, for example, um, the FBI files and. Um, the, the government records um, where Carr worked um, and and so on, you, you cross-check those things with the things that Carr said uh, or claimed. And you can, you can get at the truth. You may not get the exact truth, but you can get at it. Um, so for example, um, uh, you know, one of the kind of amusing things is, is um, Carr, on his application form uh, for his job at the Office of War Information during World War II, he noted that he he spoke French and Italian and had some German. Um, well, the only language Carr spoke was English, <laughs> and and uh, so you know you 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 use the documents to to um, get a sense of his claims and and uh, their validity. Um, and I, I was also uh, fortunate in that um, late in the project, I was able to find the, the papers of a guy named Buck Lanham, General Buck Lanham, with whom Carr was briefly in partnership in a public relations business in the, in the 1950s. And uh, Lanham was a, a genuine war hero. He'd landed at Normandy. He'd been very close to uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, he was commander of the Big Red One, and Carr persuaded him to um, join his public relations firm as a as president. And within four months, uh, Lanham quit. And um, in a, a scathing uh, letter to his attorney, he said that that you know it was for ethical issues as severe as anything you could imagine. Um, I never could pin down exactly what the the precise ethical issues were. But Lanham's papers at, at Princeton are so full of his correspondence with his attorney and with other people that you can get a pretty good sense of what an, what an unethical 
bastard car was. And yeah, there's a lot of different choices that could have been the one thing that put him over the top, it seems. That's right. That's right. So, you know, you, you, that's why it's important to, to go to archives and to, to look in them because you, you find things that people wrote, people wrote down, uh, oftentimes without any intent that it's going to become part of the historical record. It's just, you know, part of their lives. And a historian can then plug that sort of stuff into other things he knows. Well, the title of your book kind of gives away your conclusion to a degree that, you know, that Carr was a Soviet mole, but that doesn't happen until decades into his life. And I think what really fascinating are those decades that lead up to the 1970s, because more than anything else, Carr seems to be the ultimate opportunist who went where the money, I mean, from being, uh, you know, the former mentee of Henry Wallace, you know, to being anti-fascist, to being someone who would have ties the left wing, to supporting the Marshall Plan, central role in the friendship train, all these things, someone who can reinvent himself as well as Carr could, really is the kind of the, the fascinating part of this book leading up to when he actually goes and works directly for the KGB. Yeah, I mean, he, he had several careers. You know, he, he's, he's a reporter. Um, and then, then he goes to work for the Office of War Information, where his boss is Alan Cranston, future U.S. senator. Um, he, he, he leaves there under a cloud because he's been accused by Martin Dyes of being a communist, um, which he probably was. I could never find hard evidence. The FBI looked very, very hard and could never definitely confirm that he was a member of the party. But he, he, he was very close to the party and probably was a member. Um, anyway, he, he gets forced out of the Office of War Information. He goes to work for Drew Pearson, and, and he, he's a perfect fit for Pearson. They're two um, very unethical, um, shady characters who were, will do anything to get a story. Um, one of my favorite things, uh, uh, Jack Anderson, um, who really succeeded Carr as Pearson's chief leg man, uh, told me that one of Carr's techniques was he, he would go to the State Department and he would go into the men's room and he, he'd sort of squat on the, um, on the toilet, closed <laughs> door, and he'd eavesdrop on people coming into the men's room uh, for stories. Um, he had the ability to read memos on somebody's desk upside down. Um, he, he was a real, you know, a real character. He, he lied to people that he was trying to get stories from once he posed as as being uh, working for for Vice President Wallace to to get a secretary to give him a classified document, um, he he then gets accused by Joe McCarthy on the floor of the Senate of being Drew Pearson's KGB controller, um, which, like most of McCarthy's charges, is is a wild wild exaggeration. There's no evidence he worked for the KGB in this period. Um, and then but this he, is the period right after he had worked against the Russians in many respects with the things right. like the Marshall Plan and the Freedom Train. That's right, supporting the and and I don't know that that was. Uh, I mean, clear he he'd been a communist or a pro-communist as a young man into his thirties. Um, the switch to to kind of a more um, pro-American position, um, I don't think was motivated by principle. I think he he realized that the country was changing and, and uh, 
communism and pro-communism was not going to advance his career. Um, and, and so he becomes a, a patriot. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's constantly going to the FBI offering to, to give them information. The FBI is very suspicious of him. They, they don't trust him at all. And um, he wants to make money. He wants to make a lot of money. And uh, so he, he, he goes to New York and starts, he goes to work for a public relations firm where um, everybody hates him. Um, one, one of the guys who worked very closely with him um, that I interviewed back in the 80s when, when I uh, spoke to him on the phone, he, his name was Norman Norman, which is a you know, strange name, but he was one of the giants of American advertising. Um, when I told him I was doing this biography of David Carr, he said, this is not um, an authorized biography, is it? And I said, no. He said, good. Well, let me tell you about that son of a bitch. <laughs> and, and he started cursing and using words to describe Carr. It went on for like five minutes. I was frantically writing, trying to get all the, you know, all, all the denunciations. Uh, he, he said, you know, Carr, and I reported this in the book, um, he said Carr would go to another agent at the public relations firm and say, you know, I just got comps and tickets to a New York Knicks game at the Garden. I can't go. Why don't you go? And and by the way, I've also got a comp uh, hotel room. So if you've got a hot date, you can take her to the hotel afterwards. And, and the guy would do it. And then in the middle of the night, a um, private detective would open the door with a pass key and take pictures. Uh, he said, you know, Carr would, would blackmail people. He, he you know, just a thoroughly despicable guy. Um, and, and then he, you know, this market relations network, which is the name of his PR firm, you know, he, he recruits Lanham, who, who lasts about four months before he quits in anger. But the company really thrives because Carr hooks up with another operator, a guy named Al, uh, Alphonse Landa, and they, they, they start doing public relations and in stock uh, proxy wars. Um, and they develop a real niche and they wind up taking over companies. And um, it, it's pretty nasty business, quite frankly, with a lot of underhanded dealing and, and uh, bribery and um, recruiting people in the other camp to spy for you and so on. There's one wonderful story you tell where they're hired by one company to protect it from being taken over. And in the end, they end up taking over the company they were hired but, by. Right, the, the, yeah, they, uh, the, the poor guy that hired them never knew what hit him, um, <laughs> except that he lost his company. And, and it, it's Fairbanks Whitney and David Carr, you know, at the age of I think 39 or something like that becomes CEO of Fairbanks Whitney, which is a major American company, a big defense contractor. He can't get a security clearance. Um, he has trouble getting a passport. Um, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, and yet, you know, there, there are all kinds of, of very conservative, wealthy people that admire him and are willing to work with him. Um, so he's a charmer. He, he's, he's got a remarkable ability um, to, to make people feel confident about him. Um, and he runs the company into the ground. He's, he's, not, he's not the best businessman. Um, and, uh, so then of course, after he's forced out by the stockholders, um, he, he, uh, he goes to Hollywood and he has a brief career as a, a producer and puts on some Broadway shows. Um, and, but he, he's constantly looking for something else. He, he, 
he, he's very smart and he wants to make money and he has very few scruples about how he makes that money. He's, he seems and, to always be looking for the next scam. I mean, that's, he, that's, if it, he goes to Hollywood, marries or about to marry a, a starlet and then ends up with some rich uh, French woman. That that's kind right. of changes things. I mean, it's one of these things like always the grass is always greener, always looking for finding ways to get ahead. Right. And, and uh, you know, the one story, I, I'm not sure, I don't think I put it in the book because I couldn't confirm it. But, um, and the guy that told it to me hated Carr with a passion. So I was not sure he was telling me the truth. But uh, he said that, that, in fact, I'm pretty sure that the story was, was not true. But, but he, he said that Carr met this French woman. He was engaged to the starlet and uh, they were planning their round the world honeymoon when uh, Carr met this French woman on the set and uh, of a movie he was producing. And um, the guy said, well, he immediately went and checked her Dun & Bradstreet rating and within a week he was engaged to her. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's probably not true because it, that was not the story that, that she told about when I interviewed her in Paris about uh, how she had met Carr. So I, I thought he was probably exaggerating, but probably only slightly. Right. Um, you know, he, he moved into a very fancy um, apartment in Paris that was bought by her parents. And uh, he began networking again, you know, Armand Hammer, Sergeant Shriver, Aristotle Onassis. They, he, he's moving in, in increasingly rarefied circles. Um, and it's, it's in, in the early 1970s when uh, Sergeant Shriver introduces him to, to uh, Armand Hammer and Shriver, Hammer and Carr traveled to the Soviet Union to discuss some business deals. It's around then that he starts getting mixed up with the KGB. Well, let me, let me, this is important that from the 1930s when he was flirting with communism, like so many young people in the 30s, right? Especially when the rise of fascism, 40s, 50s and 60s, there had been multiple FBI investigations on him that right. found no direct ties to the Soviets or to Soviet intelligence or the KGB. So right. even though he was a bit of a scumbag, even though he you know, did all this stuff, up until this point, would you say it's safe to say he was not in any way working with the Soviets? I, I think that's quite true. You know, and the irony, of course, is that when Joe McCarthy accused him of working with the Soviets in 1950, he wasn't. And it's not until 1970s that he that he makes the connection to to the KGB. And as you mentioned, this is when he started. Actually, Sergeant Shriver may not be a name that people under 40 recognize. This is this is the Kennedy brother-in-law, right? This is somebody right. who this is somebody who has deep ties to the Kennedy family. This is somebody who invented the Peace Corps. This is someone who has deep ties within Washington. But also, you said on the other side of the aisle try to get access into the Ford administration. This is somebody who had the opportunity at least to have that kind of access. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a networker par excellence. Um, you know, it, the, the, um, it, it's quite interesting that, that uh, in 1968, um, uh, Carr is the person that tells in a private meeting at the White House, uh, he informs Lyndon Johnson that uh, Jackie Kennedy is going to marry Aristotle Onassis. 
um, uh, which um, presumably he he got that from Shriver, um, and uh, you know, so he he's got he's got high access to, to the Democratic administration, and yet in the 1970s he's he's snuggling up to the Ford administration, probably at the behest of the KGB. Well, what's interesting to me, and the question I want to ask you is, uh, there's a great quote, I think it's by his fourth wife, but where he talks about car makes people feel disposable, like Kleenex or a pack of Kleenex. Uh-huh, yeah. Always using somebody. Yes. What are the chances, in your opinion, that he's playing the Soviets in the KGB just as much as he played everybody else? I think that's a possibility. Um you know, one of the bizarre things, and I don't reach a firm conclusion because I just couldn't get the information. Um, in 1976, um, Carr is, he supports Sergeant Shriver, who makes a, an abortive bid for the presidency. Um, Shriver flames out. Carr supports Jerry Brown. He also supports Scoop Jackson, who's an old friend back from the 1930s. And, and I, in, in, the, in Scoop Jackson's papers, I found letters, remarkable letters, in which Carr seems to you know, disparage Sergeant Shriver, saying that you know, he, he thinks that the KGB has taken an interest in Shriver. Well, they had, because Carr had told them to take an interest in Shriver. <laughs> and, and in fact, uh, the guy who who um, turns out is, is Carr's KGB controller uh, later becomes the, the head of Russia's Special Olympics, which of course was you know something that Sergeant Shriver and his wife were deeply involved in. Um, so you know Carr is telling Scoop Jackson uh, all about how um, Shriver's an idiot and doesn't understand the people that are using him. Um, and, and remember, this is the period of of um, detente. And this is also the period when the Soviets are fixated on the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which uh, Scoop Jackson was pushing to, to link American cr economic credits to the Soviet Union to emigration of Soviet Jews. Uh, so Scoop Jackson was the, the bete noir of, of the Soviet Union. And here is David Carr, who's a, working for the KGB, we know, from a document from KGB archives, um, buddying up to Scoop Jackson. Was he trying to get information on Jackson or was he revealing his true colors? Who the hell knows? <laughs> um, I, I think my own guess is that Carr was so, um, so much of a manipulator and so cocky and self-confident that he probably thought he was using the KGB, that he was using everybody. Um, well, that's the, that brings up the question, of course, that when he dies unexpectedly at a relatively young age, you would think he'd be 110 at this point. Um, was he murdered? Because it was his, one of his wives that kind of stopped the process of him getting a burial that saying he was killed by, by what the CIA, the KGB. We haven't even talked about the Israelis yet, the Mossad. Somehow the mafia gets pulled into this also. I guess right. it's the, the usual suspects. Right. <laughs> but if you look at this, he's pissed so many people off. It's not that far-fetched. Right. It, it, there's a surface plausibility to it. That in, in the book, I, I say that every one of those 
four suspects had a plausible reason for being unhappy with Carr and a reason perhaps to want to kill him. There's no evidence that any of them did. Um, and, and I looked really hard for it. <laughs> uh, it would have been a much better story uh, if I could demonstrate that he was killed. Um, you know, there were some, there's some anomalies and, and so on about his death. Um, but as anybody that, that looks at the real world knows, things don't always line up exactly. Um, there always are anomalies. I mean, you know, look at the Kennedy assassination, you know, how, how many, you know, there's, a, there's an industry that right. uh, has proliferated about anomalies. So I, I, I look carefully at it and, and there's, I, I don't think that he was killed. I, I think, you know, he had suffered a heart attack a couple of years before. His lifestyle was um, not particularly healthy. Um, he, he, he was given to excess in, in various ways. Um, and so he probably died of a heart attack. I, I couldn't totally rule out murder, um, but the probabilities are it was a heart attack. And if he was murdered, um, there's only one really logical suspect, which is the KGB, which has a long history of wet jobs, um, which they have not, you know, the, the Russians have, have not abandoned, right. as we know. Um, and and the, the, the embarrassment to the, to the Soviet Union um, could have been considerable. Uh, Carr was involved at the time of his death. He and Armand Hammer were partners in a uh, deal. They were, they were marketing the Olympic commemorative gold coins, so a very lucrative contract that the KGB had arranged for Carr. And um, it, it provided the bulk of his estate, in fact. Um, and the, one of the guys that had originally put together that Olympic coin deal had been pushed out by Hammer and Carr, and he was angry, and he was he filed a lawsuit, and uh, in the lawsuit he alleged that he had been pushed out so that his share of the profits could go to um, a guy named German Gvishiani, who was a, a Soviet trade official whom Carr was very close to. More importantly, Gvishiani was Leonid Brezhnev, uh, not Brezhnev, um, Alex Alexei Kosygin's. Uh, son-in-law. Uh, Kosygin was the number two man in the Soviet Union. And um, the guy that had filed this suit claimed that um, Carr and Hammer had gotten the contract through bribing Gvishiani. Well, that would have been a, a major embarrassment to the Soviet Union. And uh, so, you know, if he was killed, my guess is that would have been the motive. But again, I could not get any evidence that that in fact he was killed by the KGB. Yeah, no, no polonium in, in tea mugs, tea cups that, or anything. That's else. right. That's right. Yes. And the, and the <laughs> yeah, yeah. The autopsy showed that he had had a he, he died of a heart attack. Um, he did have a a, a broken bone um, in his neck, but the explanation was that that he'd had the heart attack and as he fell, his the his neck had hit uh, the edge of a table. And, and that had resulted in the broken bone. Um, well, conspiracy theorists can say, well, yeah, sure. Um, you know, he was being choked and, and he had the heart attack. Um, 
uh, yeah, there's no, is that, there's no reason to go. There. I mean, it's not like he got shot in the back of the head three times and they call it right. Suicide, right? That's right. That's right. So this is the last book you published, but it's not the last thing you've written that's certainly caught my attention. You wrote an article um, that I'm hoping you at some point turn into a book so we can have that conversation about maybe what's next about something near and dear to my heart because I, I do nuclear intelligence. I, uh -huh. I focus on that issue. And there's an article that has been a couple places, but the public probably saw it, I believe it was in the New York Times, right. about a potential, or now I think we know for sure, fourth spy at Los Alamos during the Second World War. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that going to be the next book? Uh, possibly. I, I hope so. John and I are, are hoping it will be. It, a lot depends on the FBI. We're waiting for additional FBI files, and as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, yeah. Um, I, I may or may not be alive <laughs> by the time those files are released. Um, and we're waiting for other files that we requested under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's a great story. And again, it's, it's an example of, of sort of partly happenstance, but partly also um, just having read lots and lots of files and being able to recall collect connections. Um, in, in, Spies, the book we wrote with Alexander Vasiliev. Um, Vasiliev had uh, taken notes about a, um, a spy ring the Soviets were trying to reactivate in 1947 or 48. Um, and, and they called it the Relatives Group. And it, it, it seemed to have three brothers involved in it. And uh, somebody else who was associated with AMTORG, the Soviet trade organization, and, and another person, um, probably a female. Um, one, of the, one of the people involved who had the code name Godsend had worked at Los Alamos. And um, of course, we were very interested. We tried very hard to figure out who it could be and, and came up totally blank. So if, if you read Spies, we have a, a page or so description of this group and say, we don't know, we don't know who it is. Um, well, a, a couple of years ago, I was reading uh, recently declassified FBI files about Operation Solo. This was uh, Morris and Jack Childs, who uh, had been uh, important figures in the Communist Party who had become FBI informants in the early 1950s. And um, uh, there, there's uh, some information in, in these declassified files, buried in them, um, about three brothers and oh my god <laughs> i i've discovered uh i've discovered the relatives group and and um it's a long story but indeed uh jack childs told the fbi uh about the fact that gibby needleman who worked at amtorg uh, and was a friend of his um had been trying to get information about these two of these brothers who had fled to the soviet union in the early 1950s and so uh, John and I were able to, to put together the, the story of Oscar Saborer and his, his brother Stuart um, and uh, wrote this article that appeared in Studies and in Intelligence and then was picked up by the New York Times and, and had a, a, a big impact. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I should have known, but I learned a lesson that, that the article appeared in Studies and in Intelligence, which as you know, is, is read by intelligence professionals and people interested in the intelligence world. 
and it, it created a little bit of a stir. But then uh, the New York Times had a front page story on a Sunday morning uh, about the article, and it had uh, six hundred thousand hits. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and um, you know, we're we're finding out more about Oscar Sabor and. Um, he, he, his job at Los Alamos was apparently a little more significant than we had even thought at the time we wrote the article. And people at Los Alamos are starting to declassify some documents, which give us a better sense of what he did. He worked on the detonators. Um, and uh, again, we don't know exactly what he gave to the, the Soviets, but um, it, it certainly could have been very, very valuable material. Well, the key is that it's all of us are now, and you've been doing this for a while, I've just started, but all of us are trying to create the complete picture of right. what happened here. And we're all looking at pieces of it. And, and I think that every time we were able to discover a new piece, it makes everybody better. I mean, like you and I don't necessarily agree on a lot of things. Um, I, I'm, I'm much more leaning to the left side of this where not necessarily on anything that anyone who was named in Venona or anywhere else, but probably you and I probably would disagree on Ethel Rosenberg. Uh -huh. Probably not anybody else, but, but the Ethel. Um, but no matter what, when new information comes out, it's always fantastic to start building this big story that we will never know the truth until we get all the pieces together. And so any, you know, this kind of information for me was fantastic. And it, again, anyone listening out there, if they haven't, go read these articles. Uh, the easier one, obviously, to get to is the New York Times, but studies, just about anybody, you can Google studies and in intelligence and you can find it online, so you can read both articles. But just the kind of this new information that's out there that um, hopefully, you know, God forbid the FOIA takes as long as you, you <laughs> fear it will, uh, but we can just keep building upon this and, and eventually get to the complete story of what I would argue is the most important espionage question of our, our lifetime. Um, if not ever, so that's, I'm being very biased again, I do nuclear intelligence, but right. that, you know, to me that, that there's nothing that matters more that, that guided the entire cold war period was because right. of this. So, um, like kudos for that, because the, the, this, uh, this article, hopefully again, maybe in your next book, uh, could be, um, the next piece of that puzzle. Well, I hope so. You know, a lot, you never know. Uh, one hope I have, it's probably forlorn, but um, the hope is that now that, that Oscar has been exposed as a Soviet spy, that the, the Soviets might be willing to you know, give him some credit. Um, and uh, they might reveal a little bit about, you know, from their own files about him and, and sort of boast about him. We know that you know, they've done that a little bit. Uh, they, they like to take credit. Um, particularly with, with Putin, a former KGB officer uh, running the country, about how wonderful their intelligence service is and how effective it was. Well, the George that's, Koval. That's right. Uh, with the GRU, yeah, that was, you know, out of nowhere, all of a sudden there was GRU agent at Los Alamos. Like, what the hell? That's right. That's right. And, and so perhaps, you know, perhaps um, in the not too distant future, the, the Soviets will, you know, churn something out about, Oscar Saborer, I mean, they gave him a medal <laughs> uh, toward the end of his life. And, um, uh, you know, we'll learn more about what he did. Um, it would be great because as you, as you say, there, there still are lots of pieces of this puzzle that are obscure. 
Well, maybe we'll get that one day, but if you want to read something fascinating today, and, and of course all of us do because we have nothing else to do, uh, go <laughs> grab The Millionaire Was a Soviet Mole, The Twisted Life of David Carr. Uh, the author is Harvey Clare. Harvey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk oh, to my us pleasure. Podcast. We've my been pleasure. trying to get together for a while. I'm glad we finally did. So thank you. I so am too. I am too. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.